Good morning. One last time. Everybody's ready to go home. <laughs> General Ratner was an English businessman who came from a Jewish family. And he inherited a struggling jewelry business and in less than 10 years he turned it around so it was a 1 billion pound business. The jewelry business at that time was very sedate, but he made it flamboyant and had a fluorescent orange posters advertising discount prices and bargain deals. And they had many stores in Europe, including thousand stores in the US, including K jewelers. The jewelry itself was regarded as tacky, but it was very popular during the 1980s until April 1991, because on April 23rd, 1991, Gerald Ratner was addressing a institute of directors at the Royal Albert Hall, and this is what he said. He said, we also do cut glass sherry decanters, complete with six glasses on a silver plated tray that your butler can serve you drinks on, all for 4.95 pounds. People say, how can you sell this for such a low price? I say, because it's total garbage. He used another word, but I just used the word garbage. He called his own product total garbage. Of course, he came the next day to apologize and say it was all a joke, but the damage was done. Customers withdrew from the store and the company lost 500 million pounds. And to avoid bankruptcy, they had to get rid of the CEO and they had to change the name. One moment, 10 seconds of regrettable words that broke down what took years of building up and caused years of damage. This morning in a sermon entitled, The Journey of a Fall, we are going to look at such a scenario of regrettable words that broke down what took years to build up and caused years of damage. We're going to look at seven aspects in the journey of Peter's fall. We're going to look at a very common story that we've heard preached numerous times, the story of Peter's denial. And I want to look at seven aspects of this journey of his fall. The first one is what I'll call temperamental vulnerability temperamental vulnerability. Peter's temperament was such that he spoke before the words formed in his mind. <laughs> before he could process the thought was out of his mouth. And this happened multiple times over the course of his time with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16 verse 21 to 23 it reads, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned back and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He was prone to this weakness. That was his weakness. We are all prone to certain weaknesses, right? We have temperamental weaknesses. And every person is prone to certain weaknesses than others. It may not be that words come out of your mouth before you've thought about it, but we all have our weaknesses. Maybe a weakness is lust and indiscipline. 
Maybe a weakness is anger and pride and disdain for people. Maybe our weakness is fear and anxiety and constant complaining. Maybe our weakness is laziness and selfishness. But we all have our temperamental weaknesses. And being a Christian, being in the ministry does not change the fact that these are our core temperamental weaknesses. Something that we will have to deal with for the rest of our lives. Because it is a core temperamental weakness. Let me ask you a question. Are those in the ministry more prone to sin? I'm not looking for a yes-no answer. I'm just raising the question. Are those in the ministry more prone to sin? Let me give two suggestions to, to encourage the thought. Could it be that those in the ministry are under attack more? It's possible. Because the devil would like nothing better than to, to see leaders fall. But obviously we can't make that as the excuse. I do all kinds of nonsense and say, oh, the devil made me do it. No, that's not going to work. The second reason is maybe we have the desire, what I will call, shaking off the shackles. You shake off the shackles. You know how sometimes you have a busy day at work and your people don't cooperate with you, things go wrong, nothing goes right, and then at the end of the day you want to shake off the shackles and so you go and eat a whole bunch of junk food. right? Or you go do a whole bunch of shopping that you can't afford because you just want to shake off the shackles. Is it possible that because we are in the ministry, because we have to have holiness and we talk about Jesus and we talk about the gospel all the time, there is a part of us that wants to shake off the shackles and do sin just because we are in shackles all the time? I don't know. But we have temperamental weaknesses. Second, there was an unheeded warning. Jesus had warned him, but he ignored it. In Mark chapter 14, 27 to 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Of course, Peter got up. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him directly, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. The reactor design used in the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, it was the RBMK-1000 reactor, it had inherent safety flaws that they knew about and the, the engineers were not adept at handling it. There were safety drills and tests that were done that highlighted the shortcomings of the reactor's safety systems. In fact, there were prior incidents and near misses, including one in 1982 in Lithuania that used the same reactor, and one in 1984 in Chernobyl that used the same reactor, but nobody heeded the warning. And so on April 26, 1986, the reactor experienced a sudden power surge during a test, and the entire thing exploded. 
And because of the lack of containment structure, which was one of the design flaws in that reactor, it spread everywhere. 31 people died instantly. 350,000 people had to be evacuated. Thousands of people suffered from acute radiation sickness and long-term health issues like thyroid cancers. There were genetic mutations and birth defects. There are areas in that region that are still cordoned off because the land and the, and the plants have all been affected by it. They did not heed the warning. If we are new believers, it is possible that we don't know what God wants from us. But if we have been in the faith for a period of time, we have a general idea of what God wants, what is sin, and what is not sin. Do we really need another warning? We don't really need another warning. It's there in the scripture. Yeah, yes, God does warn us through sermons, through Bible readings, but we don't really need another warning. So obviously we can't say, oh, I didn't get a warning, therefore I went and did sin. You already knew that we shouldn't have done a particular sin. So we may not get the kind of warning that Peter got. The third aspect is ideal conditions. Peter had the ideal conditions. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22 verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. Where was Peter? Peter was in enemy territory. He was in the courtyard of the high priest. Now on the left side, is the, there is still the path, the original path, uh, which they took to come up to that region. In the middle is the courtyard, and then on the right side is the palace of Caiaphas. And it is in this courtyard that Peter sat. He, his master is captured. And his master has never been captured before. He had near misses before, but Jesus always escaped. In this time, he was captured, captured by the highest Jewish authority in the land. And so Jesus is in the palace of the high priest. And now Peter is being tempted. If he says yes, he will suffer the same fate as his master master. Peter had never done this before. It's not like he could have prepared for it. Yes, he ignored the warning. Now, Peter has been a punching bag for 2,000 years, right? We've at least preached one sermon on it, or at least heard a sermon on the denial of Peter. Let me ask you a question. Would we have done differently? He was in the circumstances suitable for his sin. There was nobody around that he knew. These were people that he's never seen before, he may never see again. Are you a disciple of Jesus? If he said yes, he would most definitely suffer the same fate as Jesus. It was easy for him to say no. 
A key factor in whether we sin or not is whether we are in the ideal circumstance for sin. And we can look at Peter and say, oh, how could he do that? But he was in the ideal circumstance for sin. What if we had the ideal circumstance for sin? Would we sin? What if we were prone to lust? And the right person said the right thing at the right time and there's nobody around. Or what if we are prone to anger and everything we've planned does not go the way we planned it? That would be the right circumstance for your anger to show up. What if we are prone to anxiety and then a random doctor sees a random lesion on a random x-ray? What if we are prone to laziness and when the pastor asks you, can you come and do this ministry, you wake up and it's raining. If the ideal circumstances were there for our sin, would we do it? When I see a leader fall, I think to myself, I'm sorrowful that happened and I think to myself, that could easily have been me under the right conditions. The fourth thing that Peter had is a sin pattern. Peter found himself in this circumstance. The conditions were ideal and he denied. Luke chapter 22 verse 57 reads, But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. So he denied first and that satisfied them. They were happy. Peter was safe. Peter was satisfied. They asked again. Peter denied again. They were happy. Peter was safe. Peter was satisfied. And then the Bible says there was a space of one hour. What happened in the space of one hour? Between Peter's second and third denials, there was a space of one hour. What happened? What happened was they assembled the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. They came up that pathway, went to the palace of Caiaphas to have a hurriedly assembled impromptu session to accuse Jesus. They had accusations, they had false accusations that were refuted and then finally they asked are you the son of God and he answered in the affirmative and that was enough for them. They accused him of blasphemy and sentenced him to death and then they beat him, they pulled out his beard and they slapped him around. All this happened in that one hour. After that, after the conviction was complete the Sanhedrin left the palace of the high priest and went away because according to Jewish law you cannot convict somebody in the middle of the night it needs to be done during the daytime so they would come back during the daytime to confirm that conviction but in the space between the second denial and the third denial they had done the conviction and the beating already so the people on the courtyard were listening to what was happening in the palace of Caiaphas once that settled down, attention focused back onto the courtyard. And now somebody noticed Peter again. And they asked him for the third time, are you one with Jesus? And now it is easier for him to say no. 
The first sin is the hardest to do, isn't it? The second time it's easier. The fiftieth time, a piece of cake. He got into a pattern of sin. We can easily get into a pattern of sin. I want to give two reasons why there can be a sin pattern. The first one is the pleasure of sin. The pleasure of sin. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 24 and 25 reads, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable. Sin has benefits. So even though there are subsequent emotional and physical consequences, it's because of the pleasure of sin that we keep coming back to it. Peter had a benefit when he denied. He was safe. He was not beaten up like his master. The second reason for a sin pattern is because of the lack of immediate permanent consequences. The lack of immediate permanent consequences. It's because of the grace of God that he doesn't punish us right away. And we still take advantage of the grace of God. In Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What if God gave us immediate, permanent consequences. If our problem is lust, and Jesus said, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery. What if the first time you looked with lust, you got blind in one eye? Would you look again? No. What if your problem is anger, and the first time you got angry, you lost an inch of height? How many more times are you going to get angry? What if your issue is worry and anxiety and you build these fantastical hypothetical scenarios that could never happen but it can happen in your head and the next time that happens God says alright we will let it happen. If that happened one time, you'll never do it again. But what if we are lazy and we don't want to take part in what God is doing and we give random silly excuses because we are lazy and the next time we do it, we lose 10% of our bank balance immediately. How many more times would we give silly excuses? It's because of the lack of permanent immediate consequences. The combination of the pleasure of sin and the lack of permanent immediate consequences can lead us to have a sin pattern. After enjoying the pleasure of sin, Peter has guilt and shame. Luke chapter 22 verses 59 to 62 reads, And after an interval of about an hour, still another persisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. 
And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The Bible does not record the words that Peter said, but whatever he said was true repentance. Peter was distraught. This is the misery of post-sin, self-disgust, guilt, and shame. Sin always leads to shame. Adam and Eve had shame after they sinned. Peter was so distraught that he disappears after this. The next time you see Peter is on Resurrection Sunday when the women went to the tomb, found the tomb empty, and they ran to Peter and John to say, the tomb is empty. He completely missed the crucifixion. Guilt and shame serve a purpose if it leads to repentance. So in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 it reads, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Even after we confess our sins, we can still carry around a guilty conscience. How can we have a clean conscience? Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. William Shakespeare in his tragedy Macbeth tells a story of how Macbeth was encountered by three witches and they prophesied that Macbeth would become king. So to make the prophecy work, Macbeth went and killed his lord Duncan. And after he killed his Lord Duncan, he would wake up for days after in the middle of the night and he would say, where is that knocking coming from? What is happening to me that I'm afraid of every sound? Will all of great Neptune's oceans wash the blood clean from my hands? No, instead my hands will stain the seas scarlet and turn the green waters red. That is a guilty conscience. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 reads, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It is the blood of Christ that can cleanse a guilty conscience. What can wash away my stain? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In the journey of this fall, we talked about the human perspective, but sixth, we will look at the agony of God. One of the things we forget when we sin is the agony of God. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 6 reads, Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Whenever we sin, we subject Jesus to the experience of the crucifixion and to the Father to the experience of seeing his crucified Son. Since forgiveness is not cheap, 
Sin is not benign. Since forgiveness is not cheap, sin is not benign. And seventh, the restoration. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 21. When you look at John chapter 21, and you come to John chapter 20, it looks like the book ended at the end of John chapter 20. Let me read the last two verses of John chapter 20. Verse 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that seems to be a good conclusion to the book. And yet there is chapter 21. Why is there chapter 21? Why is there an epilogue to the gospel that John wrote? Some things seem to have been left unfinished, including the role of Peter. The issue of denying becomes an issue during persecution, right? If there's no persecution, if nobody's questioning your faith, denying is not an issue. When John wrote his book, it was between 80 and 90 AD. That was about 50 years after the events. A lot happened in those 50 years. In AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed by General Titus. In the late 60s, Nero burned Christians at the stake. Peter was crucified. Paul was killed. There was widespread persecution going on. And there was a debate of what to do for those people that denied Jesus during the persecution. There were two options. There were two schools of thought at that time. Should we restore them or should we not restore them? And so John adds this epilogue to show that Jesus actually had option three. And so we've read the story before on the Sea of Galilee, which by the way is the only account of the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection. Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee. The disciples, the seven disciples are on the boat. They cannot catch any fish. Jesus tells them to catch some fish. They bring the fish. By the time Jesus has got some fish, he's made a fire. He's made breakfast for them. They have breakfast. And then sitting opposite Peter, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter had a very high opinion about himself. If you asked him this question a few days before, he said what he said. He said, I will never deny you. I will never run away. And so Jesus is confronting Peter's high opinion about himself and his commitment to Jesus. But Jesus did not go easy with a superficial answer. But what is it that brought Peter grief? Jesus asked the first time, he said, sure, I love you. He asked the second time, do you love me more than these? He said, sure, I love you. Then he asked Peter a third time, do you love me more than these? And the Bible says Peter was grieved. Why was Peter grieved? Let's read the verse, John chapter 21, verse 17. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. 
Why was Peter hurt? Because it was the third time. It was erroneously thought that it was because of different use of Greek words for love that Peter was grieved. That's not the case. John uses words randomly without a care for whether it's agape or phileo. In fact, from 400 BC onwards, the word agape was used for love in standard Greek. John uses phileo or agape whenever he wants, without any meaning behind it. But that's not even the thing. Jesus spoke to him in Aramaic. It wasn't even Greek. Peter was grieved because Jesus asked the third time. Why was he grieved? Because the third time as Jesus is asking Peter, he's sitting opposite the charcoal fire that he made with a light flickering on his face. And when Jesus asks him the third time, he's reminded of a few days before when he sat behind the charcoal fire and the eyes of Jesus pierced through his heart as he denied Jesus a third time time. Jesus brought him back to where he sinned. And so he was grieved. There were two options for those who denied. Do we restore them? Do we not restore them? Jesus gave the third option. What is the third option? We will restore them, but first they need to confront their own sin and their own weakness and admit their impossibility of living by themselves. And then we will restore them. Jesus goes beyond forgiveness and says, I have forgiven you. What are you going to do because of it? And so he asked him to take care of his church. Not only does Jesus forgive him, but gives him the privilege to partner with him in his global task. There's something else that happened before this encounter. Before this encounter on the beach, there was something else that happened. In Mark chapter 16, and we will end with this. In Mark chapter 16, verses 5 to 7. And they entered the tomb. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Do not be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. There are four accounts of the gospel. Luke got his information from various sources, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. Matthew and John had direct eyewitness accounts. They were one of the they were one of twelve apostles. Where did Mark get his information from? Mark got his information from Peter. And Mark wrote his gospel in the 50s, about 20 years after the events happened. It was the earliest gospel. Only Mark writes this, where they say, tell the disciples and Peter. A lot has happened since the denial. 
Jesus was taken. There was another trial to ratify the first trial. And then he was led to Pilate's house, Pilate's palace. He was taken to Herod's palace. He was brought back to Pilate's palace. He was flogged within an inch of his life. Then he carried his cross all the way across through the city to Golgotha where he was crucified and had the seven sayings. He died, he was buried, and now it is Resurrection Sunday. Peter missed all of this. And yet, the angel of the Lord says this to the women. Tell his disciples and Peter. There is no other gospel that writes this. Even 20 years later, Peter was so distraught during that time. And Jesus knew that he was distraught. So even though Jesus was carrying the sin of the world on Resurrection Sunday, what was Jesus thinking about to comfort Peter? Go tell his disciples and Peter. He has a special care for his hurting disciple. That is the grace and the care of God for those of us who are broken. Let's pray. I want to give a moment for us to reflect on God's word. Reflect on the numerous times we have fallen. And the numerous times God has forgiven us and restored us.